Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Coming up on today's show, a lot of talk about when you can go back to work if you've tested positive for COVID. Of course, the isolation rules have been scaled down to five days in Alberta. The bison herd at Woodland Cree First Nation continues to grow. And we'll also have a discussion about the Canadian government and digital currency. Should we introduce a quote-unquote digital loony? We're going to chat with Rafael Gomez, who is from the University of Toronto, an associate professor and director of the Centre for Industrial Relations and Human Resources. Uh, Rafael, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. Thanks for having me, Shay. This is certainly not a, oh, okay, that makes sense and everybody in an agreement. Um, these isolation numbers, you've got people on both sides of the argument, don't you? Yeah, you would. I mean, um, it's natural that you prioritize health and safety sure. and well-being, right, of all, of all workers. That would be the universal uh, commonality, right, even people on both sides. But of course, from a public health perspective, you got to fly a little bit higher altitude. From a public health perspective, think of all the things that bring health and well-being to a society. Yeah. Um, if your workers aren't at work and they're otherwise not presenting symptoms, they're not sick by the traditional definition. We've now arrived at new definitions where yes, it yeah. <laughs> will tell you whether you're sick or not. But let's just use the traditional definition. Are you presenting symptoms? No. Should you be at work? Well, that's a question that public health should be guiding us with and not waiting for some decision south of the border, the CDC, which yeah. seemingly decides 10 to 5 arbitrarily, or when society seems to, to sort of shift in its public perception of the risks associated with COVID. Um, from a public health perspective, does it cost us health and well-being by not having people in jobs that require uh, a frontline staffing a person to be there to do their job and to maintain the health and well-being of the rest of society. Um, that's a big question, which I think would unite people on either side. And if you make that trade-off, you say, well, no, you know, I think it's better if people are at work, especially in jobs that require them to be there in order to sustain a society. Then from a public health perspective, you're actually saving more lives, right? You're keeping more people safe. Um, sort of like with schools, like here in Ontario, we've closed schools again for yeah. two weeks. Yeah. What's that doing to the health and well-being of kids, of their parents, of the jobs that they're supposed to be at and doing for others? I mean, that's the big question, which I think public health has dropped the ball. I think, you know, and you're right, like public health is not just a matter of let's make sure nobody gets sick from COVID. There are other, public health is a much far uh, larger topic of discussion. So when we take a look at this, and uh, uh, just before I brought you on the air, we talked about City of Calgary today said that their police service is facing staffing shortages. We've got the fire department in the City of Edmonton that says they're missing about 5% of their firefighters, so they're trying to redeploy resources to make sure everybody's covered. Um, we right. know this is only going to continue, right? These kind of mm-hmm. calculations need to be considered just as much as, well, this person sure. might get sick, right? Absolutely. And, and you need to communicate to the public. So they're not worried or fearful that someone, quote-unquote, sick is going about doing work, interacting with the public. 
you have to sort of decide at a societal level, what's our comfort level with what appears to be an endemic uh, virus that will be with us, like the four other coronaviruses that circulate amongst the population and in countries like ours that resurface seasonally really aggressively. Once we have that as our overriding kind of new normal, then I think we can begin to plan more sensibly and not be so dramatic and be fearful of something that's novel because it's not novel anymore, right? I think we have to rebrand the novel coronavirus, a new strand of the common cold. Because if, right. if, you, if you just pitch it that way and you reframe something, um, it can create better sets of decisions. Because when people are in panic and fear, they actually take greater risks. Like by telling you know, your firefighters, stay home, you're, 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 because you're trying to avoid a loss, you actually take greater risk. This is a well-known property. Uh, uh, Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize for this idea. It's called loss aversion. When a society is presented, presented with a problem that's framed as a loss, we double down and take huge risks to avoid that loss. What you have to do at a public health level is reframe this issue. Okay, hang on a second. Let, let me, let me stop you there. That sounds yeah. really interesting to me. Let's apply that directly to COVID and explain me. When you're right. talking about uh, a loss, when we're talking about right. COVID and what we do as a result of the perceived loss, what's the loss and what do we do? We're, we're framing it around every infection is a, is a loss. It's a serious event. Okay. Every, every transaction or potential exposure to COVID is the thing we have to avoid. And when, when that is presented, that's the overriding uh, theme of public health for the last two years, it creates a sense amongst the population that anything is worth doing to prevent that loss. But, of course, not everything is worth doing to prevent that loss. Keeping firefighters at home when they're not sick, they might have tested positive, but if they're not presenting symptoms, I'm sorry, firefighting is a very important uh, <laughs> task in our society, especially at winter when fire season, like our seasonal virus season happens because people are indoors, they're turning on heaters. There's, there's patterns to, you know, public health risks that we have to acknowledge and which, you know, if you're always framing it around preventing losses associated with COVID, you're going to actually create risks that are greater elsewhere in society. Simple. What you're talking about here is a cost-benefit analysis, really. And I know there are people screaming and yelling at the radio right now, what about my kid who can't get vaccinated? Or what about my immune-suppressed wife who's going through breast cancer treatment? I don't want to minimize those people, and I know you Not don't either. So how Not do you how do you have that conversation? Because those are legitimate, but they have to factor Absolutely. in somehow. Yeah, so I guess the presentation of COVID risk in those populations would have been equivalent to previous risks that already existed. Influenza season, our seasonal flus, the Worst year we had, which was in actually recent memory, uh, in Canada, um, and this is before we don't have any tests for influenza. So we only attribute death to influenza as a residual after we count up deaths that happened because of heart attacks and so on. It was 13,000 people in Canada in 2016, 2017, because it, it followed the H1N1, which had entered the population and mutated. So we've had these risks already, okay, amongst those groups that you mentioned. And the reason why we haven't kind of thrown society up on its head is because the, the, the kind of um, side effects that you produce from instilling fear amongst the entire population. For, as you say, for a disease that is most at risk amongst an acute group of people, a population that's vulnerable, that should be protected. But if you create the scare and fear amongst everyone who's not at risk, those are the damages that you produce. 
what to do with those people? You give people those options. We now have great, you know, uh, options virtually to work. If someone is compromised, immunocompromised, even after vaccination doesn't feel comfortable going to work, allow them to work from home. If their children have similar issues, allow them to be schooled from home. Be flexible with those groups. That's what's called a focus protection strategy, right? Not one where the entire population a blanket is approach in fear. Exactly, exactly. Are we seeing that? I mean, obviously, we're having these discussions where we didn't prior to Omicron. Are we moving in that direction where some of the decision makers and some of the advisors to the decision makers are starting to say, okay, there's more we need to be considering here? It seems to be maybe that's happening. You would hope, right? I think yeah. it's fair to say that in the first months, um, it was it was terra incognita, right? We had no da- we didn't have enough data to come in to know what this was going to do, and we were at home, so we really didn't know. You know, by being at home, we never really tested what this virus could do to the entire population because we essentially shut down major industries. You know, almost every office worker uh, went home, and it's now only now that society opened up that we entered a seasonal virus season with basically pretty much everything open in most provinces um, that we kind of now see what will happen probably going in the future. And in the future, you're right, it has to become a more uh, rational policy that sets out what are the costs and benefits. Yeah. And, and we're talking about um, costs and benefits, not in economic terms. You can, you can create these cost-benefit models from the, the idea of what risks are you imposing on society by shutting down again at this stage, two years in, right? Absolutely. And amongst populations that are otherwise not vulnerable. Um, that, I think, is the question we start to have to ask of our public health officials and our political leaders. So long as they think we're still in a state of fear, I think they're guided by this precautionary principle, which they think is shut everything down because that's the safest thing to do. But at this stage, that could be the riskiest thing to do. Uh, Raphael, I think it's an absolutely fascinating conversation. I'm really glad you took some time to join us this morning. We'll chat again as this goes along and see how our uh, our elected leaders are doing. But uh, thanks so much for your time today. It's my pleasure, Shay. You Take bet. care. That is um, Rafael Gomez, who is University of Toronto uh, Associate Professor and Director of the Centre for Industrial Relations and Human Resources. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. There is, uh, well, we'll call it a small bison herd that has been um, set up on the woodland Cree Nation in our province. Um, and it's it's a big step forward. It's a really fascinating story. So to get the details on it, we are going to chat with Chief Isaac Laboukan Averon and Lawrence Lamouche of the Woodland Cree Nation, both of them joining us this morning. Um, gentlemen, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. <laughs> no problem, Lawrence. Are you there? Lawrence, are you there? Okay, Lawrence is there. Okay. Chief, I want to start with you because we're talking about the fact that you've not, what, it's, it's 14, 15 bison out there right now. Is that right? 18, I believe. 18. Okay. It's, um, it's taken a long time though, right? This all 
basically got started back, what, in 2019? Yes, yep. Um, and you're part of a... I mean, there's a whole group of First Nations right across the continent, really, that are doing this. Just tell us how you got involved in this project a couple of years ago, why you decided it was something that would be good for uh, Woodland. Well, we've always, I've always been interested in bison. Like a long time ago, well, I guess over 20 years ago when I was firefighting, I had found a buffalo skull in literally in our traditional lands, but in the middle of nowhere. Um, so since then, I've been fascinated about buffalo. And then as the stars aligned, so to speak, we were, we had the opportunity to get some. And the bison come from Elk Island National Park. Now, Lawrence, you are land manager uh, for Woodland Creek First Nation, and it's sort of it's fallen on you to sort of look after this herd, right? It's your job? Yes, it's part of my uh, job description now, yes, to um, take after them. But um, it's not just me. It's a, it's, a, it's a whole pack of us that... Uh, you know, jump in and uh, do the best we can to make sure that they're thriving in our in our on our homeland. Now, when this little plan got started, and you found out that you were soon going to be responsible for a, a small herd of wood bison, um, did you have any experience? Did you have any understanding? I mean, what did you have to do to get ready? Um, uh, well, to be honest, no. Uh, like <laughs> like I said, we've we've had uh, you know a lot of uh, learning to do, but um, in the short amount of time that I've learned. It um, it helped tremendously, and you know, I've always been fascinated with them as well. Um, you know, we hear stories of uh, long ago of uh, bison, and uh, we we know that bison are in the area because of um, you know part of um, the findings, like uh, Chief Isaac mentioned, the skulls, but also mm-hmm. uh, just some of the old stories and you know how our area was almost like a plains area in. in in some areas, and that was due to the, the bison long ago. So, at least that's what the you know the stories that we hear. So yeah, it took um, it took a short amount of time to uh, learn as much as we can, but we got it. What what goes into it now? Like, is this a data? I mean, are they wild? I guess, for lack of a better word, or are they sort of you got a lot of hands on care of these animals? Um, not much hands on right now. Uh, we've just um, uh, opened up area for them so that they could roam around. And, um, you know, they, they tend to, you know, do, do what they want to do in, in, in that area we have for them. Um, uh, we, we feed them, we give them uh, hay, minerals, and uh, water as needed. And um, some of it's uh, daily, but, you know, we check, we, we check um, every day or every second day to make sure that they have what they need, and uh, we just go from there. Chief, how important is it to have um, wood bison roaming uh, on the Woodland Cree First Nation? Well, I think it's uh, very important now, like it did come, I don't want to say unexpectedly, but it's something that we do find important, especially as as we go through like times of uncertainty. Like when I look at the bison, I look at some, some kind of food security in the future, not right now, but maybe in five years from now. You know, and I'm um, mm-hmm. hoping it also helps on some of the the wildfire um, to deter some of the wildfire stuff. So, like as Lauren says, as they roam and as they kind of forage, they kind of clean up the the area. So hopefully, it deters some of the the wildfire as well. 
but yeah it's very important to create purpose to create jobs and to even just uh, get that pride into our community and also there's a cultural connection right i mean we all know if there's one thing we know we know how important bison were to the first nations people of this country absolutely like even in our area there's old community that's is literally called bison lake and then our neighboring community with the Lubicon First Nation, it's also, they're in a community called Little Buffalo. Hmm. How so, big would you like to see your herd get? Oh, man, if I could, I'd like to see it definitely over 100. Okay. What are the plans? I mean, are you just growing it out on your own now? Or, I mean, these ones came from Elk Island National Park. Is there a plan to get more from the federal government? Or how do you go about growing the herd? I think as we develop capacity, I think we're basically leaving all doors open, so yeah. to speak. So take it day by day, you know, and then uh, plans. Yes, it would be nice to plan to continue to get the herd bigger in the future, but to maintain the the genetically specific woodland, woodland buffalo. Lawrence, what's what's your goal here? I mean, obviously you're taking care of the animals and, and looking after the herd, but I mean, you 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 too talk about that cultural connection and how you'd like to bring that to the young people, right? Yes, um, yeah. So you know, my my vision for the future for these bison are also um, you know making sure that they they're healthy, that uh, they they thrive in our area, and um, part of that is just learning you know how to kind of separate them as needed and uh, bringing more um, wood bison bulls in. And, uh, you know, that's, you know, something we can talk about in the future from uh, Elk Island National Park just to help, uh, you know, keep those genetics there and um, to help them, uh, you know, grow as as needed. Um, You know, one of the cultural things, you know, that uh, we were talking about is uh, maybe, you know, just introducing it into uh, our school curriculum so that they can, you know, learn, observe, and... um, apply whatever knowledge that we can together to uh, help them thrive in this area. So the more that we we know and learn and contribute, I think that will greatly increase our um, our knowledge and, um, you know, the things that we need to do to help them thrive in our area and so that everybody knows and, you know, learns from that. And also, too, with the, with our, our language, the Cree, right? Because we, we call... Um, with bison sagamosos in, in our language, and you know that's very important to always address that uh, you know that's who they are because you know the more we use our language, the more we learn and sure. you know our our traditions and our cultures you know stay intact. Isaac and Lawrence, I think it's awesome what you're doing, and I really appreciate you taking some time to tell us the story this morning. Thank you so much. Even milk tastes yeah, a little bit no sweeter problem. in the coffee in the morning. Does it? I'm just bugging it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Appreciate your time. Uh, that is uh, Lawrence. That is Lawrence Lamouche and um, Chief Chief Isaac um, Libokan uh, from the Woodland Cree Nation in Alberta, uh, where they have brought back. As you heard, they started with 14. They brought in 14 bison from Elk Island National Park late last spring and introduced them to the Woodland Cree First Nation. It's now up to 18, and they hope to continue expanding the herd. And um, it's just such a such a neat story. Tiny Tim sent, a te- uh, sent us a text saying, uh, Bison is hands down my favorite meat. I pray for the return of massive wild herds as they are a North American symbol. Thank you so much to both these individuals for helping to try and nurture them back 
to grow a healthy population. I want to do more on this story, Tiny Tim, because this is just one aspect. Um, as I said, they started this back in 2019, but um, the Woodland Cree First Nation was one of more than two dozen First Nations um, that signed what's called the Buffalo Treaty. And the goal of this is to restore the bison herd to the wild. Um, So they were one of the early adopters in Canada, and right away, Parks Canada came along and offered a herd of 14, and they jumped on it, and now they're off and running up to 18. Uh, But I'd be interested in knowing if there's other First Nations in Canada and in the United States that are taking part in this program. I got a text from Kerry saying, Shane, my late grandfather... Chief Chonkale introduced uh, reintroduced bison in northwest Alberta in the early 90s as well. The herd grows so large they had to hand out hunting tags. So it's a project that's been underway in different areas, and I'd be interested to see how successful it's been, not only in the Alberta area, but uh, right across the prairies. You know that Bitcoin uh, has steadily, slowly but surely become more and more, um, what's the word? Mainstream? Uh, accepted? Um, I'm not sure. The list goes on and on. But it's certainly become something that we're all more aware of, and it's made some inroads into quote-unquote conventional business. Now, there's, believe it or not, there's discussion around the world by different governments to take a look at maybe the government should introduce its own digital currency. We're getting some information. They've done some work around it. So joining us to give us some details about what we've learned so far and why anybody would want to do this anyway is Jeremy Kronick, who is the Associate Director of Research at the C.D. Howe Institute. Jeremy, thank you so much for your time today. Appreciate you joining us. Thanks for having me. Okay, so uh, a government introducing a digital currency. Um, what are we talking about here? and Why would the government even be considering something like this? Well, it's a good question. I mean, you mentioned Bitcoin, but there's a whole bunch of other, you know, private cryptocurrencies uh, that are circulating that, that that are being created. For example, Facebook's yep. uh, DM uh, is an example of that. Those are closer to what we call stable coins. But the idea is, this, if if these private cryptocurrencies are going to become more and more, uh, you know, mainstream or whatever word you want to use for it, uh, you'd like it to be backed. Um, by some kind of uh, fiat money, like the Canadian dollar, that makes its value, the stablecoin's value, uh, more stable. Um, and you want you want that sort of ease of, of conversion between private money and public money, much like we have now uh, with commercial bank deposits, that we can easily go to an ATM and take out cash, which is public money, uh, if we so desire. So are we talking about, like, a, like uh, for me anyway, Bitcoin, a lot of these coins just seem like speculative vehicles, right? I mean, are are we talking about that kind of a thing, something that's separate from the Canadian dollar or just a digital version of the Canadian dollar? Well, so in in, in the case of the government and the Bank of Canada, what we'd be talking about uh, is a digital version of the Canadian dollar, right? A digital version of cash. Um, and, and, And I think governments and central banks are considering this not so much because of Bitcoin, because as you mentioned, it's not overly stable, right? Yeah, and and yeah. so people are using it, uh, but it's more speculative. It's more of an investment. In terms of the sort of the, the typical definition of money, these stable coins, something like Facebook's DM, is much more of a concern because it's much more stable because it's typically backed by, you know, U.S. dollar or Canadian dollar or some, uh, you know, like I said, fiat money. And also it has these big global social media platforms that make ease of transaction 
uh, significantly uh, more improved. Um, now, the Bank of Canada apparently has been looking at this actually for quite a long time, right, whether or not to do this. Um, what have they come up with? Obviously, they have some concerns, it sounds like. Yeah, so they, you're right. They've been looking at this for a long time. I, I mean, I think that we, we've put it into overdrive because of the, the stable coins. Yeah. Um, I think that's put it into you know, really, really put it to the forefront for the Bank of Canada. But you're right, there's a whole bunch of stuff that goes into this. How do you design uh, a central bank digital currency to give everybody accounts at the Bank of Canada, which would make, uh, you know, you know, private banks have to compete for deposits, which could create, uh, which could upend the financial system, right? So there's a whole bunch of design questions, there's a whole bunch of supervisory questions and technology questions. So if you're going to do it, you really have to sort of think through all the different angles. And I think that's what the bank's doing. Um, how close, like, is this something that could happen? I mean, with all the concerns they've identified, is there something that could tip the scale and, and make this something more feasible? Well, like I said, I think the stable coins are certainly uh, making it more likely uh, that something like this will happen, uh, you know, down the road. But, but certainly, you know, if the Fed, for example, in the U.S. decides to do this, well, that would probably put a lot of impetus on the Bank of Canada to do it as well. So I think, uh, you know, there's a bit of looking at what's happening in other jurisdictions mm-hmm. uh, as well. But, but certainly you need to prepare so that if you need to pivot, uh, you can pivot quickly. Are other jurisdictions farther along on this? Are we hearing any plans from any other countries? Well, so there are, I mean, there are some, there are some countries that that have already uh, issued uh, digital dollar. I think Bahamas has called the sand dollar, right? It's their digital uh, dollar. But in terms of the big uh, major developed countries, uh, none yet have have you know released one. China's got some stuff going on as well. But in terms of what I think we would be looking at most mostly would be what's happening in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, and other G7, G8 countries. Um. Is this something that the government should, I mean, you know, we're talking about the government and they always seem to be reacting rather than being proactive. Is this something they could possibly lead on and something they can get in front of? Well, yeah, I mean, I, so, so I wrote a paper with a colleague of mine uh, about this. And my view is that they should do this. I think, to, to, and less about the defensive measures and more, I think it would actually support the development of private cryptocurrencies if we think that those are beneficial. People like the idea of immediate settlement and peer-to-peer and uh, decentralized uh, oversight over the payment system. Like, I mean, things. Like, if we think there are benefits to these private cryptos, I think a Canadian dollar, would, a digital Canadian dollar, would be helpful in that regard because Canadians like the stability. It would then be backed by the Canadian dollar, uh, which would help in times of crisis for governments if they want to borrow or for central banks if they want to support liquidity in the system. So I think there's real reason to to move forward with one, regardless of what's happening in other jurisdictions. Um, and do we tie that to the Canadian dollar, I mean, everything like this typically seems to be tethered to the U.S. dollar. That's the international currency, right? I mean, how do we, how do we not get left behind on that front? Well, so, I mean, so, so yeah, I think, I think most stable coins, I mean, including Facebook, would ideally access, I think they would prefer to have backing uh, in the, the currency, you know, in the domestic uh, economy. So if Facebook's operating in the U.S. and Canada and the U.K., they would have they're DM backed by the Canadian dollar, the U.S. dollar, and and the U.K. and the pound. So I think that 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 that's what they would prefer as well. So I think if the central bank uh, moves forward, that would actually be helpful in that in, in that regard. Interesting. I mean, it is the way of the future. We'll see where it goes. Jeremy, thanks so much mm-hmm. for your time today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. You bet. That's Jeremy Kronick who uh, has been doing some work around this digital currency. And as you heard, he thinks it's a good idea for our government to do. He's the associate director at the C.D. Howe Institute. Um, 
And a couple of you on the text line um, saying things that I kind of, uh, I agree with. Like this listener says, um, the point of digital currency is to get away from central banks. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, another listener, when I, when I was asking him, why, you know, why would governments be interested in getting involved in something like this? This listener says, because right now it's out of their control and governments don't like that. Not at all. So I, I'm going to be honest with you. Uh, I'm horrible with all this kind of stuff. I don't really know how any of this stuff works. I don't know what the point of the digital currency would be if it would somehow be different from the Canadian dollar. Um, but uh, yeah, for me, the whole point of the digital currency and the reason that it was introduced in the selling line from the day it emerged was free from regulation, free from central bank control, free from government control, right? I mean, that was, that's how it was marketed. That's what it was all about. That's what the internet is. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us. Thank you.